0: Welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Plenty to talk about today as we come back to you live from the Bailey meyer studio for the first time in quite a few weeks. Of course, we'll be leading off talking about what's happening in the USA. We all have friends in America. We all care what happens to that great country. It is the leader of the free world and what happens there matters. So it's important that we try and understand it as best we can. Closer to home, we'll be looking at a very, very challenging court case in the Federal Court in which anybody could be held liable for defamation for posts appearing on their Facebook page, not just publishers, so everyone has an interest in that one. Uh, And we'll also be looking at Christian Porter kicking off today the five roundtables in which supposedly the industrial relations system of this country will be fixed within the next three months, something to look forward to there. Plus, as usual, we'll have our Books and culture segment, where we'll be talking about a good old John Grisham novel, uh, getting ready for the next time you can fly on an aeroplane, uh, The Leopard, uh, the movie version of The Leopard, uh, and of course, Berg, what was the other one? Catherine
1: the Great, or The Great is the ah, TV yes, series. yes,
0: yes, The Great, Catherine the Great. And um, so, yes, I'm pre-announced.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Bye. I'm Chris Berg, RMIT um, uh, University Academic and IPA Adjunct Fellow.
0: Thank you. Also an IPA <laughs> adjunct fellow is Dr. Aaron Lane. Welcome back to Looking Forward. It is a great pleasure. It's great yeah. to be here. Great to
2: close the social distance. Yes, no.
0: this will <laughs> be excellent. So, no, plenty plenty of ground to cover. Don't forget, this is a podcast or a videocast of uh, the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to see how you can join, donate or just generally get around our research and commentary please go to ipa.org.au or just DM me and I'll get back in touch and I'll tell you how you can go about doing it. End of financial year appeal on foot at the moment too. Don't forget about that one. Uh, But first of all, as I said, uh, we've all been uh, horrified. Is always the first reaction uh, to the scene of riots in America. We were horrified by the event that precipitated uh, those riots. Uh, We also see peaceful protests. Uh, We see political implications, lots of different implications. Dr. Boog, I am not even sure where we start with this one. Well,
1: Scott, why don't we start with the precipitating event? Um, So last week, May 25, um, a person named George Floyd was arrested by Minneapolis police officers. He was accused of making a purchase of cigarettes with a counterfeit bill. In the process of arresting him, um, one of the officers knelt on his neck um asphyxiating him or causing um uh, some internal pre-existing condition but either way whatever happened um he died this has sparked of course nationwide protests in response to widespread um understand uh, a widespread belief that there are serious problems with policing in the united states i'll just give one stat before i ask Aaron what's his immediate um, view is on this Um, uh, this is a serious problem I've just been looking at some of the Cato Institute data and they did a survey of Americans favorability of the police and they found that while 68% of white Americans have a favorable view of the police only 40% of African Americans do so when we look at those numbers despite the complexities of each individual incident um, the uh, obvious disinformation that there can be around these things, the partisan views. It's obvious that there's a serious policing problem in that a large percentage of the population just don't trust or don't have a favourable view of the police in the United States. Aaron?
2: Yeah, I, I think there's... I mean, there's so many different layers of complexity here um, to unpack, um, but but I think that's, that's the starting point, and I, I think that's why we're seeing... Um, such a, a heated uh, kind of reaction to this, not only um, you know in the city that it occurred, but right around the US. Um, and you know, I think that that's been one of the fascinating things for me is that it's it's uh, you, you can kind of understand uh, if there were protests in that one city.
1: Yeah, in Minneapolis. Yeah. Um,
2: but you're not you're not just seeing that you're seeing protests right around the country in huge numbers, and so it is tapping into I think a, a much um, a, a deeper vein there. Um, so something that um, that that I was reading this week um, was an article that was published in the uh, the uh, Duke Law Journal um, by an academic uh, Stephen Russian, and he's done an analysis of um, police union contracts. Mm. And one of the, the great problems in this area is where there is um, alleged police misconduct. The police are treated very, very differently to how uh, other um, you know civilian um, people uh, would be treated in the same situation. Um, you, you
0: mean legally, the legal regime that they that they are. Right, right
2: in, in terms of um, so and what, the
0: industrial relations. Regime.
2: and and yeah. and this is and and this is where it stems and and, and this is Russians analysis um, is that it's it's all captured in these union kind of deals um, for the police force and so that if, if police are um, a- accused of any sort of misconduct um, you know while on duty uh, then there are particular provisions that have to be followed that um, wouldn't ordinarily be followed in a, in a civilian context so um, for example um, if uh, the uh, you know so in in this in this situation, um, or, or take perhaps it's safer to take a more hypothetical situation <laughs> of because uh, we are moving
1: into the defamation right, section of this right <laughs> we're,
2: we're, you know I'm I'm sort of conscious of that um, so let, let's let's say a, a hypothetical police officer has been accused of assault you know hmm. let, let's say um, rather than sort of being uh, you know. Taken and and questioned in an interview room, not given you know any information. No, th- those things are quite intimidating. I've I'm, I've been in those in those rooms before, um, uh, as a lawyer, by the way, the not side. as a, <laughs> not, not, not not as uh, being the interrogating. But um, you know, whereas. If the the police are often accused, what the, what the deals provide, and these deals are different all over the country, but what, what some of them provide is that they have to um, have access to all the witness statements and all the information that the police have. And, you know, it's, um, it's a really different um, treatment to what you would get if you were just a normal sort of person on the street. And so um, I, I think that's a that's one of the layers of complexity here that I don't think is really talked about, uh, enough um, uh, although the New York Times ran a very very strong editorial um, on this on this issue um, you know just in the last few days so yeah uh,
0: I, I think it's right uh, that's that's very interesting and, and there's certain immunities there and I feel like what we're about to do here is we're moving forward in time like the issues you're raising were probably the pertinent issues for about the first 24 hours like if you like that the pro for me um, the immediate reaction starts as an issue about policing and criminal justice. Um, then it becomes about America and African-American ideas and, and, and you know, the, the New York Times view that America is irredeemably racist. And that goes for about another 48 hours. And then it's just like burn it down, which is sort of where we are now. So there's there's this sort of progression And that's why it's good to start with that because there was these real issues, if you like, and then it gets progressively further away from the actual concrete issues of of policing and criminal justice, which are real in America, to a whole bunch of other things.
1: But uh, uh, But it is important to dwell on that even when the news cycle moves on. Right, um, and it's too often in our political conversations that um, we we scream about something for twenty four hours and then we move on to the right. next thing. And I've always been critical about that. In fact, in 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 the aftermath of terrorist attacks, when you know it takes months to find out exactly what happened, but um, uh, but the, the, the everything's moved on since then. And and in the background of all these all these riots and the looting and the protests, which we're going to talk about, there is genuine move for reform. To reduce some of the um, these law enforcement officers' bills of rights that give them those um, uh, give them those very unusual, extraordinary rights, but also to deal with things like um, immunity from civil suits after the fact, the qualified immunity issue, right, um, which is a super interesting one, um, uh, and there are cases trying to get in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. The qualified immunity, and and, and Aaron probably knows more about this than I, but qualified immunity prevents. Um, individuals who feel that they've been abused from suing officers in civil courts?
2: In, in their in their personal sort in, of name. Yeah. Um, and so that's, it, it's kind of a take on um, vicarious liability, but kind of, I guess, perhaps the other way. So but vicarious liability is if, if you commit negligence in the course of your employment, then someone can sue your employer rather than you personally. Now, the benefit of that is that, the, pers- the individual person is unlikely to have any money uh, and so you want to go after the bigger fish. Um, qualified immunity sort of provides um, law enforcement with a shield um, against legal actions personally from actions that they've taken in good faith in the context of doing their their duties. Um, and so in, in this situation, yeah, I mean, if, if they are using... You know, let's let's say they're using reasonable force against um, uh, an alleged offender um, to detain them. Uh, that's that's something that could be done in good faith in the in the course of their duties. Um, but using reasonable force might cause injury. You know, to that person, and that injury could be, um, you know, quite bad. Um, and so, uh, what? what the qualified immunity sort of does is, is prevent that police officer from being sued personally for effectively doing his job. But there are all sorts
1: of, there are all sorts of professions. So I understand that, but there are all sorts of professions that um, lack that sort of immunity. And the market response is that you buy insurance. So you, you buy indemnity insurance. Right. If you're um, often doctors do that, um, even teachers can, uh, be known to require professional insurance and and that sort of thing. And it strikes me, and this is this is a, again this is a Cato Institute argument um, that allow uh, that the reducing qualified immunity and exposing officers to the the um, consequence of negligent conduct, um, not sort of reasonable conduct in the line of duty, but exposing them to the legal consequences of negligent conduct will actually allow a price signal, if you will. Through the insurance markets to to weed out these bad officers. I mean, I, th-
2: I think the starting point is that you know that law enforcement have to be able to do their job, mm-hmm. um, and you know I think that, that so the the qualified immunity kind of makes sense in in that in that it's a this is a new, unique um, sort of job where your actions may cause harm, um, which I think is unlike um, sort of other professions. But th- this was introduced in um, I, I think the 1960s. Uh, the, the problem has been there's been a series of cases over the last sort of 10 years, 20 years that have really expanded um, the remit um, of this immunity. And I, th- I think that's what's brought this into, into focus, I think, in the last decade is because it's become a lot broader. Um, th- there's now an argument about, um, about that. I-, I think, you know, ultimately... Um, this is something that legislators should be looking at. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are there are times when uh, the, the the courts are limited here. You know, the, the courts have, have often got a back precedent.
0: Yeah, so that's um, again, as we say, there there was an underlying issue there. It's a real issue that's that's uh, not going to go away anytime soon.
2: And it's and it's not a particular issue in the um, uh, in the Floyd George case either.
0: No, but and 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 we're going to get to Trump because all roads lead to Trump. (laughs) But uh, it is worth pointing out before we move off, you know, issues like that 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 um, while Trump is uh, has you know, sees, you know, the the police, you know, as one of his natural constituencies, he's actually done some things on criminal justice reform. And, right. You know, and behind me there's a, you know, Kanye West on the cover of the IPA review. What the hell was he doing there? Well, it was actually in the context of him visiting the White House to talk about criminal justice reform, sentencing reform. Um, and uh, so uh, Trump, who, um, as uh, S- Scott Adams has described, has this ability to... Speak in a way that simultaneously appeals to two different audiences, even if the things aren't necessarily, you know, coherent um, at the same time. Because he can be pro law and order, but also favour criminal justice reform on the basis that one of one of the uh, uh, side effects of the system has been that it's unfairly penalising African Americans, and he will brag about uh, the improvements, which is real, that he has made um, to African American employment rates and so on. Of course, up until now, I uh, uh, until uh, what's happened? In the that's last absolutely months. right, and
1: and it and it is interesting to see whether this will change because, um, uh, the Trump administration has been very proud of its criminal justice efforts to the extent of attacking Joe Biden for being too tough on crime by supporting the the um early nineteen nineties Clinton. Crime law reforms, which were w- widely seen as a, a very tough on crime thing, so right. w- Whether this changes or not because of what's happening this week,
2: and, and, and we've seen this in the, uh, the the democratic primaries as well. You know, and Kamala Harris has been criticised. You know, for her her record because she was a prosecutor. She was a prosecutor. Yeah. You know. So, um, and uh, you know. Uh, And and she was just one of, you know, of of many being criticised on on that. So, um, you know, it's it's been, uh, I I guess, an issue there on both sides of politics. But um, Trump made something of this in his State of the Union, his most recent State of the Union um, speech. Um, And... That seemed to me to be forgotten in the in the last week by the administration itself. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not talking yeah. about you know the the media having a particular bent. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking. I think the administration's forgotten. Mm. You know what its own record is on this, mm. and and that's that's kind of the one of the big um, heart kind of this issue. I was going to say hearts, um, you can't have more than one heart. Can you? Uh,
1: unless you're a time lord. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, anyway, it's 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 one of one of the big things um, <laughs> of, a, about this issue is non-violent um, alleged offenders um, being killed. Yeah. And but, that's that's shocking. But this and that is,
0: should not be happening. But that's this this is my point about you know how this has evolved. So we're recording this on on Wednesday morning. Um, uh, so we'll come to a critique by um, Tucker Carlson, the um, conservative. Um, columnist uh, and uh, Fox News uh, Fox News commentator in America but the um, you know the initial responses from the White House yeah we were, were, were you know had that memory if you like they're very much with oh my god you know George Floyd that's terrible you know Trump himself uh, was jumping on it he didn't call it say you know damn that, that looks like murder to me but you know it was it was pretty sympathetic if you like and um, and it's but now as things have moved on Uh, it's trumped sorry that was not deliberate um, by law and order because and you know and of course when there's you know 50 plus American cities um, with severe riots and a breakdown in law and order well you know You know, there is going to be a law and order response of some description, so...
1: Look, look, that's all true, but what I want to do is be really clear that until, say, Monday, Australia time, Sunday, the United States, this was not about Trump. Um, This occurred... The original incident occurred um, uh, more than a week ago, and there have been protests, and those protests have not been about the president. And so now, by Wednesday this week... Um, Everything is going to be about how the Trump administration has responded, in part because there were protests in DC. But in fact, the dozens of protests in cities across the country have been not about the administration; they have been about the policing right. things. So let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about the protests themselves before we talk about how Trump has responded. And so what we've seen very quickly is sort of the full gamut of of of, of the protest. Spectrum. We've seen very peaceful protests, very admirable peaceful protests, and at the other spectrum, we've seen riots and and, and looting and very clear opportunistic um, behaviour. We've seen um, incredible. Uh, uh, we've seen excessive violence by protesters. We've seen excessive violence by police. But of course, we in Australia, we like everybody else, even in the United States, are following this on our Twitter feed, and we're getting. A um, bizarre mixture of um, uh, reads of both sides of politics, blaming the police, blaming the protesters, and so forth. Um, The first thing I want to claim, as I mentioned, don't you think there's a bit of a double standard here? First of all, last week we were being told, or the week before, we were being told that you can't go out, you can't protest, you can't get out of your house because um, there's still a pandemic. The great and good have been telling us that the anti-lockdown protests would... Um, uh, create more disease, more um, harm, and uh, that we all had to stay closed. That apparently has finished. The pandemic is obviously over. Um, I, and, and to, I mean, here in
2: Melbourne, you know, um, we're, we've got protesters that were protesting the lockout um, were, were fined. Um, but uh, I understand there's a, a Black Lives Matter um, protest where the police ministers said, no, we're, we're not going to... In advance. We're not going to find those people in advance. You see, there
1: are good protests and there are bad protests. Right, got to, um, right. And, and in um, Australia, it's not even defensible because you could have made the claim that, well, there were there was peaceful protests and there was potentially violent protests or something like that in the United States. So you could, you could potentially make that argument that one is different from the other. Sure. But here... I mean, no one's armed. <laughs> there's, there's no risk here. What we're doing is we're just saying, well, are some protests are good and some protests are not.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely, uh, it's, it's shocking but not surprising, I've, I've got to say.
0: Yeah, well, it's, just, it's a short attention span too Of and, and uh, it flips. So um, the, um, the left's enthusiasm for, for lockdowns is, is now completely flipped. It's like, <laughs> well, that was yesterday's issue. Who, who cares about all that? But – so one of the
1: challenges that we have when we look at these is that there are – so the way I think about it is that there, there are – there's a role for peaceful protest, absolutely, and, and as a defender of freedom of speech and expression, I think those are actually not just – you know, they're, they're not just acceptable, but they're welcome. I, I, I support protest as a general um, uh, behaviour. But there's also – at the other spectrum, there's clear looting and rioting and violence – um, it's not peaceful protest to um, ram raid the local Adidas store and and grab what you can and go. It's not peaceful protest to to smash up the good guys. Um, but at the, so that's two types of protesters. But my the problem I think is that there are three types, and the third type is a class of protesters who think that violence is actually political action, and that's the antifas of yes. the world. That's the um, the radical elements of a protest and they they make it really hard because it fills out a spectrum of types of protesters they make it really hard from an urban order and disorder perspective so we want to be able to facilitate safe and peaceful protests but what happens when violent protesters um, are doing the same thing and they just fall back into
0: yeah you can you can have a peaceful protest of two thousand people but you know 30 thugs from antifa turn up and um suddenly it's a violent protest. Suddenly it's a violent protest. And it's like, oh my god, there was a violent protest involving two thousand people. And so, well, yeah, but the two thousand people, that was not their aim, that was not their intention, they did not participate in it, but it it triggered a, a cycle um of, of escalating response. And um uh I hope you're going to spend more time on Antifa because I think that that this is... You're also the host as well, so you can... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've I've been following, you know, for some time, as I'm sure a lot of listeners have, uh, Andy, know... In uh, what seems to be the epicenter of Antifa in America, which is um, Seattle, where they've basically been given free reign for a long time. You know, they call themselves anti-fascist, so apparently since that gets you a leave pass
1: since the nineteen ninety nine September eleven protests. You yes. can basically
0: just <laughs> go around, you know, beating the shit out of anyone you feel like, and including Andy No, the um, uh, independent um, uh, citizen journalist, if you like, former Quillette. Yeah, and that's and that's um, and that's okay. And uh, I think he claims with some justification. It's like, well. Nobody, nobody cared when it was happening in Seattle, or nobody cared when it was happening to me. Now it's all over America, just like I told you. And and um, and there's but Trump is now talking about declaring them a terrorist organization. Um, I don't know how the American law works, but certainly it requires a different kind of response. A spontaneous riot, it's pure law and order. And we and then we'll discuss in a minute. You know, what what's a reasonable proportionate response to a riot? But it's very different when you have organized groups going in. Uh, to ferment civil disorder because they are accelerationists. Uh, they actually want to bring about the end times. They actually think if they can just uh, make things bad enough, the revolution will come.
1: So what do you do, Aaron?
2: Well, yeah, great, solve this problem. For
0: great, us. great question. I mean, so on on the
2: you know listing them as a terrorist organisation thing, I th- I think you know a lot of people are going to have a lot of sympathy for that I, I, but i think there are practical difficulties in that in that um it's not just a single kind of centralized organization where you can you know, go to their registered office and, and, and serve them with the paperwork, right? You, you know, th- this
1: is a... That's not what they do to terrorists, <laughs> I just really want to clarify. <laughs> <laughs>
0: is there a Mr. Bin Laden here? <laughs> exactly. I have an envelope for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, can you please
2: appear in this? <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Um, but th- that's the point, right? It, it's, a, it, it's much more of a grassroots, um, you know, kind of organisation... Um, uh, so I think there are there are practical difficulties with that, but but I think the the problem, um, as you identify, Chris, is uh, these are kind of pro- professional protesters. Um, they, you know, it, it's showing up in in some of the statistics about the the arrests in some of these cities. Most of the people getting arrested aren't even from that from the state, um, you know, mm-hmm. l- l- let alone from the the region um, or, or the city itself. Um, and so you've got people literally bussing in. Um, to just, you know, start these, start these rides. Um, and so I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, where people are, you know, committing um, what is really illegal behaviour, it's, it's, not, it's not in support of... Uh, so it's, it's not a peaceful protest. It's not in support of any, you know, sort of political end or, or change or, or anything like that. It's just the, the commission of, of violence... For violence' sake, okay.
1: but Antifa would say, "Let me speak on behalf of Antifa." Like, wouldn't Antifa say that the act of violence is directing more attention to the to the underlying political argument? Well, well I think no, would, that, that, that's their I, argue, that's their well,
2: claim. Well, I think they would put it even deeper than that, and that they would say that, well, this is a form of self defense. Hmm. Um, we have been oppressed. And so um, we're allowed to use violence as self-defense. So we have to punch and a And because you are oppressing us, um, we're allowed to use violence against whoever it might be that we think are the oppressors, um, and, and that's our justification. So I think, I think it even
0: goes a, a little deeper but than that. Th- this is a segment of the show called Giving the Devil Its Due, <laughs> I think, where you do allow... <laughs> a moment, perhaps, to um, um, uh, hear the the best argument that they might put. I, well, well I, I, I think that that's the, the best the, argument the, yeah, that the, they might the, put. But the
1: problem is that it's not a political ethos that believes argument is valuable. So yeah. it's a, we don't hear that best argument well, because, no, it's not, no, Chris, because no, no, Chris, oh, because the,
2: the the people with. Voices are the oppressors, and the, and yeah. the oppressed don't have a voice. That, that, that's that's the claim. No, it, that, and, that's and the so, claim. But, but it's always
1: it, it, it's always it's always a group of people acting, claiming to act on behalf of those oppressed. Oh people, yeah, yeah, Not yeah, at the vanguard themselves. of the proletariat. It's the vanguard of the proletariat.
0: Yeah, right. but but it must be ruled out. Um, you know, from the start. That this we are not the, sympathetic to this argument. No, no, but it's more <laughs> than that. I'm saying that um, you can't have a political system which even admits violence as um, a legitimate argument uh, in political discourse. We well, you before, can, but it's not a democratic one. No, 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 yeah. no. It's more fundamental than that. Um, you go back to Max Weber. You know, What's the definition of a state? Um, what, what is it about a government... Um, what is it about a body, body, particularly the state, but, you know, in a, in, you know the, the body politic and its, represent, you know, its, its executive organ, the state, that makes it unique. So Max Weber, the German political theorist, identified this about 120 years ago. He said, one of the things that you note about the state is it has a monopoly on the use of violence, a monopoly on the use of force. That is one of the fundamental definitions of a state. If a, if a state abrogates that monopoly... Um, then you don't have a state anymore. What you have is uh, you are on the road to anarchy. So I don't. Even, I wouldn't even admit Antifa's argument that um, uh, violence. Is, is, you know, it, it, you, can, you can argue for violence as a, as a means of political change because it's it's outside the system.
1: I take your point. I really dislike that framing with all due respect to Weber because it's not about defending the right of the state to have the monopoly of force. It's defending the right of all of us to participate in a free community. It's, the, uh, I, it's not defend the state, it's defend democracy, defend our capacity to have... Um, uh, to be protected from the violence of others, to defend our private property, defend our ability to speak without being punched.
0: No, but um, this, how, how is we it, don't disagree? How, how is I'm it self-defense for a bunch of you know pasty white guys to jump on a bus, you know, and, and head into uh, Minneapolis and and ferment riots? That's yeah. that, that, that's. Um, that's not an argument from political process for me. So,
1: so um, uh, elephant in the room, if you will. Um, so uh, that was the story until Sunday. Um, in On Sunday, after protest in Washington, D.C., um, Donald Trump. Ha- having. I, I have to say there was a lot of um, uh, claims made over the course of the weekend that now is the time for Donald Trump to to stand up and give a great speech of unity and then he gave a speech. After
2: hiding in the bunker for three days. uh, After
1: um, uh, allegedly hiding in the bunker for three days. um, A lot of claims that Donald Trump should speak and then um, a lot of claims saying that maybe Donald Trump speaking wouldn't actually help the situation. (laughs) But nonetheless, he gave a speech, regardless of um, whether that was a good idea or not, um, uh, calling for or declaring that he is, I am your president of law and order. And calling on law enforcement to dominate the streets. Subsequently, to that, um, he took a walk out of, uh, across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church, which is opposite the White House, if you're familiar with uh, Lafayette Square. Um, to do so, there are claims, um, probably true claims, that the Secret Service and local police had to use tear gas to clear protesters out of the square, apparently peaceful protesters. Trump stood there, held a Bible for the camera. For a couple of moments, and returned to the White House. Um, uh, so it's not clear that this is helping. Um, but if you're President Trump um, in this situation, uh, how uh, is how do you de-escalate or how do you resolve the problem? Well, again, so this is this, this is the segment of the show where we, Aaron, solve problems.
0: While this Aaron's thinking, <laughs> I will add that in that very same speech, he's very you know in the next paragraph, he actually said, "I am an ally of peaceful protesters." That's true. Infinite. So. That's true. So, so the, the
2: reason
1: before tear gassing.
0: he didn't personally, <laughs> and they were only smoke grenades. Uh, oh. <laughs> okay. oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: So, there's a few things to unpack. Here. So, I mean, <laughs> the, the re- so the reason he goes over the road to the church is because you know this is a historic it, church and, and, and it's, it's been burnt, on fire. It's yeah, been yeah. burnt by you know these looters uh, the the day the, the night before. Um, and that—that's kind of the, the purpose of that. Although it just looked so sort of, it just looked weird. Um, so it, it was really, it was really staged. Um, He—it wasn't like he was going there to pray or or, or do anything like that.
1: That—that that they apparently cleared the priests um, out of the well,
2: church? and and there, there were there were some clergy that apparently were um, not willing to leave. Um, that they—they they didn't want, you know. N- Trump, I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, you know, so I, th- I think that the whole sort of looking stage, the, the, the cameras out the front of the church brandishing this sort of um, Bible, it, it, it looked really, it just looked really strange to me. I
0: feel like, you know, with, with a decent director and script writer, there, there actually was a moment there because uh, I must admit, until I'd seen the vision, I, I really liked the gesture. When I heard that he'd, he'd you know, walked out of the White House I, you know, first of all, that takes some personal bravery. This is America, for God's sake, and a lot of people have guns. Um, my children have dismissed that. It's like, oh, yeah, but, they're all, you know, Secret Service, blah, blah, blah. But uh, still, still. No, I
2: agree. I don't, and, I don't, yeah. I don't think the, the last few presidents um, yeah. would have done that.
0: And so, there's, and there's some kind of impulse there too. And um, I think he sort of got there and forgot. Right. Like, like clearly, he almost looked, what do I at do the, do now? looked at the Bible in his hand and thought, what did I bring this for again? And so he sort of holds it up and then doesn't actually refer to it. It was an incomplete script. If you it like. was an incomplete script. It was like, you know, the, yeah, the elevator pitch had worked but then he didn't have time to write the script because <laughs> there could have been a moment of, um, look, you know, this is this is a house of God and they tried to burn it down.
1: If he'd gone in and prayed, that would have been a uh, reason. That
0: would have been a bit hypocritical. But uh, no, but I, th- I think there was a, almost something he could have done there but he just it, it, it literally dissolved.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: it, it, he kind of got there and, you know, didn't know what to do. Now, I, I, I've i been critical of, of politicians using, you know, churches as kind of PR exercises. You know, I, I didn't like it when Kevin Rudd would have his, you know, <laughs> weekly press conference out the, out the front of his church. Oh, I just happened to stumble into these cameras, you know, out the front of, out the front of church. And I, I think it's particularly grating where, um, you know, I, I think where politicians don't actually have that deeply held... I mean, at least Kevin Rudd, you know, did. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, so I, I think that I just find that particularly grating. Um, and I, I don't think it has helped and, and I think it's made things, um, a lot worse, um, because you've now got, um, a lot of, um, religious bodies coming out and, and being vocally critical of, um, uh, of President Trump for for not just for that visit, but for other visits um, during the week.
0: But it does it does bring us back though to so he he balls it up even by his own standards of what he was trying to do. I think what what his original impulse was. Um, but we do come back to the core message and. There, there is, you know, mass rioting in various cities across the USA. It's probably amplified by media. You know, you can always assume it's not quite as bad as it looks on television. Peaceful um,
1: protests aren't as attractive vision.
0: That's right. Um, so they're always going to be crowded out. But, you know, order is the first duty of government. Um, without, without order, we have anarchy, and if we got anarchy, well, then there's no justification for having government in the first place. So, um, putting aside how he did it. What else is he to do other than to say this is the National Guard, this is what it's for? Um, you know, the legal provisions that he's invoked uh, are not unprecedented. They're in, invoked after the Rodney King riots in, in 1992 uh, in Los Angeles. Um, so there, there, there has to be no, some there, kind of law and order there, response there, at there some are.
1: point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely there does. And there's no defence of rioting, looting or violence. There's absolutely no defence of that. Um, but there are choices that politicians get to make about the tone they choose to set, uh, the um, approach that they take rhetorically. I mean, the presidency is a rhetorical office first and foremost. So, so, that's, so a,
2: that's a choice. Right? So when, when, when you start saying things like "when the looting starts," the, the shooting, shooting starts, 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 then it gets you know, That's that's not
1: now. Now but. he's he's clearly he's clearly. Decided or identified in this that there's a potential... I mean, he's saying, I'm your law and order president, which is, of course, harking back to previous law and order elections. We are um, very close to a presidential election. Um, And he's uh, obviously thinking that um, in a time of great civil disobedience, in a time of urban unrest, people will gravitate towards a law and order um, campaign rather than rather than obviously what what it was going to be before and which was going to focus on the pandemic um aaron what's your instinct uh will this be an effective um election approach or yeah i i think it'll be interesting to see
2: what the state governors do i I think that's the um and and how uh, how far they go with this because there's actually not a huge amount of power that the president has Hmm. on a lot of these issues um you, you you can't Uh, I think for two reasons. One is that the legal powers just are are limited. Um, You know, there are some things like the the National Guard and so on, but, um, you know you can't start directing local police forces um, you know how to go about their their day to day tasks and so that that really is up to to state governors state um, and and for city mayors yeah. um, by and large um, to control so
1: even if he wanted to trump could not drive police reform in the local towns that it needs to be driven
2: right right and 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 so i think that's so he lacks the legal power to do that, and I think the second part is he, he lacks the the political coordination ability um, to be able to achieve that, even if he he wanted to. So um, I, I think there are some great difficulties there, and that and that is is part of the, I guess the the burden of office in that yes you, you're you, you put on this pedestal of, of, of being the, the most powerful person in the free world, and yet uh, you have a limited ability to do that, and that's that's why. The, the symbolic sort of things um, uh, are so important to get right, and to, to not be ham-fisted because you, you have um, a limited ability, um, and that's if, if that's the tool that you've got, that's the one that you have to exercise really, really well. So I, I think this will largely come down to how well he can he can get um, governors to come together and, and 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 city leaders to to come together and and, and those sorts of things. Um, it's not looking. Promising to start with, um, but it—I it, think it will depend as well on does this fizzle out, yep. um, uh, or you know, does does the next sort of crisis uh, come along? Um, I, I think that that is. Um, I mean, yet the to other, play the, out.
0: Other, the it is indeed the, the other thing that I haven't seen much about though is um, the more uh, Trump as president tries to own it, the more it actually lets. A lot of the democratic cities off the hook. I think that's right. I mean, there's this recurring theme that oh my god, America, it's so racist, and it's all Trump's fault, and blah. You know, all these terrible things. You know, Flint, Michigan. It's clearly, the Republicans. Yeah. Yeah, it's always the Republicans. Blah, blah blah. And then you look, and it's like Chicago's. You know, Detroit. You know, it was the the Democrats took over in you know um, you know fifty years ago, sixty years ago, um, and destroyed the bloody city. You know, Chicago's going the same way again um you know new new york's suffering at the moment even even the governor's had enough of of the mayor of new york uh, de blasio is saying you know why? where are the police you know what are you actually doing man? i think they hate each other anyway though. yeah 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 just... well that's <laughs> right and, and they're welcome to each other but um you know that's that's where a lot of the, the actual focus should be not to, on 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 issues of policing on you know urban issues mm. um the worst examples in America that we you know keep being thrown at, you know, what a terrible right wing country it is. It's always the Democrats that are running these bloody cities.
2: I think you're right. We can't we can't let the Democratic Party off the hook and, 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 and that's that's kind of the other unknown in this is that yes, Biden has made uh, a few speeches um, th- this week, um, and some of those have been hamfisted, by the way.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if this is a time for artful rhetoric and um, <laughs> and, and highfalutin language of national healing, Nobody's then quite living up well, to you know,
2: Yeah, if that's what you're looking for, Biden's not your man either. Um, but you know, what, what's what's the Democratic sort of um, you know what's what's the Biden camp's policies? on this, um, you know, that that remains to be seen.
1: Tell you what, though, if you're a Democrat, you'd be very happy that you didn't have Bernie Sanders there right now oh. because can you imagine the easy criticism attack that points out that many of the Antifa protesters are also Sanders supporters or worse? Um, uh, it, it, they must be delighted that they have a non-entity. <laughs> Um, uh, in, in, in...
0: Yeah, the I think there's a
2: lot of people at the DNC going, oh, phew! <laughs> I,
0: I, I just keep waiting for him to um, draft Obama back, you know, to sort yeah. of do a Putin... Well, he posted something Roosevelt. up on Medium the other day. So I mean, that's, yeah. that's always been my prediction, that at some point, you know, Obama will just ride to the rescue of the Democrats and... But you know, it's not because of any personal ambition, but because of national healing or yeah. something. And right. And Michelle will be the deputy. <laughs> um, gentlemen, should we also have some, um, some... We've got some other topics. Some quick takes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have yeah. some hot takes on some other issues. Yeah, some hot takes um, <laughs> uh, to, to keep within our, our, our show length. Um, first up, there's been a landmark decision in the federal court, um, which has held... Uh, Sydney Morning Herald, uh, liable um, for defamatory comments posted by third parties on its Facebook page in a story about Dylan Voller.
1: Defo is one of the greatest hobbies of the Australian media and political class and it's um, always exciting to see new changes in defamation. The Supreme Court, uh, New South Wales Supreme Court, my apologies, has upheld a finding that media organisations are liable for defamatory content, comments made on their own Facebook pages. So if you're a newspaper... Um, uh, and you have a Facebook page to share your content, then the comments on that Facebook page um, you are liable for, even if it's not on your own, in your own post or by your own writers. The case itself involved um, uh, many people. Will remember Dylan Voller, who was the Northern Territory juvenile detainee who was at the centre of the um, Dondale Youth Detention Centre scandal some years back? Um, uh, and and he was suing the um, uh, the media organizations for um, some defamatory claims made on their Facebook page. Um, Aaron, you've looked a bit at this, uh, this is a relatively new judgment, but you've looked a bit at this um, judgment. Um, are you concerned? What do you think this? What, what do you think this means for the future of defamation and free speech?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things to say. The the, the first is that I, I haven't had complete time for it to to digest yet. I haven't read – I sort of flicked through the judgment. I haven't had a a full, detailed read. Um, but my my first impressions um, are this, that, one, we're dealing here with news organizations, um, that, that they are publishers in in other contexts, so that they, they either publish – um, either either print or um, or, or television or, or or radio, whatever they do, they do publish things in other contexts. Um, what uh, they are doing here is using, I guess, a, a third-party uh, website platform to publish other content, um, and then uh, having the public kind of comment on their um, on their post. So I, I think it can be seen as an extension of what. They are already doing, uh, albeit through uh, a different a different medium. Um, but I think it is concerning where um, you've effectively what this means for the publishers is that they're going to have to have a much greater role in moderating the comments um, on their Facebook and other social media platform pages. And um, I mean, as you, as you know, so some of these uh, comments can run into the you know the the hundreds or the, the thousands, and that's a really really high kind of cost um, on the publishers to be able to do that. Um, the,
1: but it's also the, it's also going to have some. And sorry, I'm interrupting, but you may have been getting to this. It's going to have some really significant impacts on the ability for us to comment on news stories, whether it's on the newspapers' websites or otherwise, because. Publishers aren't going to want to be on the hook for things that might be just a bit defamatory or just on the, on the verge. They're going to just delete comments if they think it comes anywhere close to being legally risky.
2: Right, right. So before I was rudely interrupted, um, (laughs) uh, I I was going to make this exact point, which which is to say that if I, so as I said, this is a a quick pass at the judgment, but, you know, if if I was, uh, you know, was Fairfax Media, who was the kind of the the lead um, uh, lead appellant, um, I would be saying, well, I'd be calling up Facebook and I'd be saying to Facebook, we don't want comments on our posts. <laughs> can you just turn them off? Is 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 there a way to do that? You know, can you can you help us out here? Um and you, you find that already on their websites. You know, if they have highly sort of controversial kind of news, yeah, they'll, show, um, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll turn off it. They'll they'll just turn off the comments. Um there, there's no real ability on Facebook to do that. Um, maybe that's something that we might see um, as, as a response. Um, but I, I think the, the, the point, and, the, and this goes into the wider digital platforms kind of debate is that the, the, the content that appears on Facebook has been there because somebody has, somebody has posted it. Um, Facebook are not like Google where, you know, things just kind of show up in the web search. Someone on Facebook has purposely, Put that content there, whether it's sharing an article, whether it's commenting or liking mm. or, or, or whatever it might be. And they be. should be liable for it. And there is a proper plaintiff here. Um, and I think this is the the thing that I, I find um, sort of uncomfortable um, about um, putting the media companies on the hook for this. One, that, well, they didn't authorize the, the sort of comments, and should they be held to ha- have been publishing them? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, but the the, the the second point is that a person posted that comment. Yeah. If there's a defamatory comment, well, the comment just didn't appear. Someone actually had to post it. And I think that's the thing that, like it seems obvious when you, you spell that out, but it, it's it's something that- I But you go after the rich. A lot. But you
1: go after the rich company, not the individual. And
2: this is the point, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's easier to sue Fairfax because they've got deep pockets and they'll pay out. Yeah. Whereas if, if I sue this kind of an, you know, this- troll on Facebook, um, I can find out who that person is, but they've probably got limited assets and no cash, and I'm not going to be able to extract my check from them. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really uncomfortable about that. There's a, there's a proper plaintiff there um, that can be sued, uh, and if there's a real problem, sue the person that said it.
1: Yeah, and this speaks to the culture of Australia's defamation laws without... Um, uh, uh, Dylan Voller is obviously not like one of the many politicians that sue each other so that they can all buy swimming pools.
2: Well, th- in, hey, in there their- there are there are politicians that are currently in the courts on I think on both sides for for things that either they have said on social media or that have been said to them.
1: Oh, on and a on fun a fun experience in Australian politics is to go back through old defamation cases and find out what successful ones turned out to be true later on.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, that's... that's, uh, Yes, J.B. Elke-Peterson and Alan Alan Bond, most famously. Um, All right, let's move on to another hot take. You can't defame the dead. You can't defame the (laughs) dead. Yeah, sorry, Joe.
1: Sorry, Alan. can't defame the dead. All right, another hot take.
0: Uh, The other hot take was on today. Christian Porter um, is kicking off his round of um, uh, business unions, uh, government tripartite meetings on the five high-priority areas of industrial relations, form, casualisation of the workforce, enterprise bargaining, and some other things that I've already forgotten. Um, there's inspirational. Uh, this is a very strange time when we have uh, a Liberal National government uh, reaching out to Sally McManus and, um, and expecting industrial relations reform.
1: Can this, I? Yeah. Can I give you a quote? So first of all, I mean, a lot of people are describing Scott Morrison as the heir to Hawking Keating for his post-pandemic approach to industrial relations, obviously calling back to the accord of the 1980s between um, the Labor Party, um, not then in government and the unions, which was continued all the way through the decade. Um, uh, Scott Morrison, I'm gonna quote him, um, talking about how we can bring everybody to, um, uh, together around the table. We've booked the room. We've hired the hall. We've got the table ready. This is my impersonation of the Prime Minister. We need to get people to get together and sort this stuff out. As I say, they've been caught in grooves for too long, and grooves and parallel lines are not coming together. So he's bringing everyone together in a room, Aaron, um, to just sort out this whole IR thing. We've dropped the Ensuring Integrity Bill, which was the key IR bill on the government's agenda for the last three years. Um, and now uh, we're just going to work out industrial relations um how likely is that to to happen um aaron at least in a good way <laughs> well look um he,
2: here's another quote for you um pragmatic politicians who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any ideological viewpoint are usually the slaves of some defunct unionist <laughs> with apologies to lord Government. Keynes, um and I, I, I think that's what we're saying you know to to say oh we, we're gonna we're gonna leave our kind of ideology at the doorstep well um, unfortunately for the government, if if, if they do that, um, then they're going to be taking up the ideology of the union movement, um, who have fought a pretty vicious campaign against them um, for the last six years. Um, the, the, the whole kind of change the rules campaign um, that was led by the ACTU and, and, and Sally McManus um, was uh, really um, a. Quite opposed to the government. That was a big platform um, of the, the Labor Party's uh, election campaign, um, you know, leading into the last election. Um, and after Scott Morrison won that election, Sally McManus uh, just went off into obscurity, um, was completely irrelevant. This, and, and so what strikes me the most out of this situation is that they have plucked their opponent out of obscurity and given her one of the most powerful platforms um in in the country and i i just am so bamboozled about that Um, you know rather rather than the the government speaking to their natural constituencies um there there are no small business representatives um, in these discussions Um, you know the big business are represented as you might expect um, but what we've got, and, and, and Scott, you said at the outset we've got a, a tripartite sort of thing. I, I, I prefer to, to describe this um, as the Canberra cartel, um, <laughs> yeah. which is, is big business, big unions and big government all coming together um, to decide on what the rules of the game are. And now, unfortunately, what happens is uh, the, the, the small guys get absolutely squeezed. Um, can I commend to listeners um, two uh, opinion pieces Uh, this week um, uh, from the Institute of Public Affairs, one from Dan Wild uh, in The Australian on this and one from Dr. Zach Gorman um, in The Spectator um, and, and both make the point that... Um, we, we're really forgetting about the forgotten people yep um, and I, I thought both of those pieces were just bang on um, and so I, I yeah I, I don't want to um, eat in eat into too many more of our minutes but other than commend those pieces so,
0: so my and my take because this is hot takes so so I uh, agree with all of that plus so as you say these these big business organizations um, it's a big leap to say that they actually um, uh, have the best interests of you know of business as a whole. The, th- the the business that we believe in, which is entrepreneurial business, innovation, productivity, growth, new products for customers, meeting customer needs. These these are bureaucracies themselves, as Jared Henderson famously called them. You know they're part just as much as part of the industrial relations club, as anyone. So just saying to business groups and union groups, you go work it, you go work it out. Um, uh, Morrison probably thinks, um, you know, the unions are self-interested, but business, you know, what's good for business is good for the country. That's not necessarily so. These guys have a vested interest. Many of them actually get a lot of their revenue just from dealing with shitty regulatory and industrial relations issues. Mm. Um, So, you know, they they don't want to see it broken up. And so what this brings to mind, and here's the challenge for Scott Morrison and Christian Porter. Go away and tell us what the agenda actually is. Like just saying, here's a working group on enterprise bargaining. What do you want out of it? The bizarre and- thing
1: that that is absolutely the weirdest thing about this. It's really unclear what the government wants out of the process. They have but no. We idea. know exactly what the ACTU wants. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and and I've got and, it in front of the the ACT will measure any proposed changes by whether they give workers better job security and a greater share of the nation's wealth. That's the agenda. That's the agenda. Right. What is the other agenda? And 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 that's why I say at the outset if if you if you're
2: going into this thinking that you're exempt from any sort of, you know, influence, um then you're going to have to take their influence. Yeah. Um and and you're going to be a slave to that. And and I really I really worry about that and and I really worry about um, what impediments are we going to put in place um, for the you know for, for the next ten years? I mean, the, the the problem is we've already re-regulated the workforce in in two thousand and nine with the, the Fair Work Act, um, and the, the
0: government have not shifted the dial on that a millimetre. Yeah. And they haven't wanted to. So the first first time the the coalition stuck its head up in in ten years, they've seen a window of opportunity, but they're not. But they have no agenda. At all, our argument was always: we know the Senate; we know it's hard to get things through the Senate. But you should always have your agenda. You should always know what you stand for. And and you've you've got to be able to prosecute a case. And and I think that you know to
2: to to give some defence of the government. I, I think this has been one of the difficulties on industrial relations: is that there are very few organisations in the country that have will uh, that are willing to prosecute the case for. Um, you know, labor market reform, in, increased flexibility, um, increased productivity. Because we're
1: all still haunted by work choices, yeah. which was nearly 20 years ago now.
2: Right. Which, which actually, um, you know, overcomplicated, you know, the, that, that was the irony about the whole thing is that work choices wasn't a great piece of legislation. Yeah. I mean, it, it, actually, it actually was, you know, very, very complicated.
0: Yeah, so regulated. Here's a chance. So um,
1: I, 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 do, I do want to end with just one point, which is the the serious point that this isn't just a normal situation in which we can bang around whether IR is a good idea or IR reform is a good idea or not. We are going into some of the largest unemployment that Australia will have seen in decades, and these are incredibly high stakes. Um, uh, meetings that they're having; these they're, um, where, where they've got the hotel rooms booked, which is fantastic. But what they are doing is playing in a more high stakes way than any Australian government has for decades with the prosperity and just – not even prosperity, just the employment of its own citizens. And,
2: and what we know and, – and, Chris, we wrote about this in our recent book, uh, Unfreeze. Um,
1: Which available now in all good books uh, else, on, on, yeah, on, on, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> or, or, or at least on Amazon. Yeah, uh, Kindle, yeah, I think
2: it's $7. Um, so, um, But what, what, we, what we wrote <laughs> about, though, in, in the book, Chris, was this idea of kind of freezing the economy and, and now we're going to have to sort of unfreeze. One of the principles to getting out of, of this um, uh, this economic state that we're in is that entrepreneurs are going to have to discover new relationships and, and new uses for resources and, and those sorts of things. We've got companies that are effectively sort of zombie companies um, that um, have still got these legacy uh, kind of industrial relations agreements and, and the, those sorts of things. And another centralised top-down approach is... Literally the opposite of what we need in this situation, which is a is a, a bottom up um, uh, discovery process.
0: Exactly, and needless to say, if Sally McManus succeeds in her agenda to increase wages as a way of redistributing wealth, well, there you know, then productivity, national competitiveness, all the things we care about, are, Just are not going to be the result. Employment, Just that's employment. right. Who speaks? Who Just speaks there. for the unemployed, not the ACTU? Yeah. Um, well, that was a good hot take. I hope. <laughs> no, yeah. I think so. Anyway. Um, I might go first actually on our books and culture segment listeners to the program of uh, Greg Sheridan and John Roskam talking about the great books will have uh, of course heard their great program on um, uh, Giuseppe de Lambendus's, uh The Leopard uh, which is a, a classic of um, the 20th century In which is about what happened in the 19th century in, in Sicily uh, during the time of Italian reunification it's this long meditation um, uh, by following the, uh, the, one of the local counts, one of the members of the local nobility, uh, and seeing the great changes coming through the rise of the bourgeoisie, uh, the displacement of the, um, uh, the local royalty by, the, um, uh, by Vittorio Emanuel, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the northern Italian uh, who became king of a united Italy. So a time of great change um civil discord all sorts of things and the famous line about well you know we we need things to change so that they can remain the same i have just finally got around to watching the movie version of the leopard um you know, you get sick of David Stratton, you know, telling you why you've got to watch this great movie that was made in 1960. You know, he does it all the time. You know, it was by such and such a guy and all these European guys. And he's just saying, yeah, 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 yeah bloody European movies. But, <laughs> uh, I've, you know, locked down. I finally watched it. It's actually the director's cut, um, three hours, and it actually is stunningly good for anyone who's read the book or hasn't read the book um, by uh, Luciano Visconti. Starring um, Burt Lancaster, I thought, really, um, the token American, but he's actually brilliant. Um, uh, uh, Claudia Cardinale, who's gorgeous, um, <laughs> it, it actually matters. Um, but a terrific movie that actually lives up to its reputation. It has a so it's two hours of movie. Lots of action because you know, and the the the, the storming of Naples by the um, uh, by Garibaldi's men is is brilliantly rendered. And there's um, at the start of it, the um, uh, the rebels are being strung up by the mayor, and at the end of it, the mayor is being strung up by the victorious um, uh, forces um, of Garibaldi's men. And um, and. But the last hour is this ball scene, um, one of the great society balls, but it's how society's changed to adjust, mm. adjusted to this new national military, this new royalty, um, the nobility's trying to hang on. And Bert Lancaster's wandering from room to room, and the camera's tracking him, and he's realising that he's irrelevant. <laughs> he's saved his position. He still has all these titles, he still has all these estates. There's no confiscation of lands. But no one cares. But no one cares. What's he there for? Yeah. These people are running the show now. <laughs> and he understands it because he's he's busy trying to get um, all his um, uh, extended family married off into rich bourgeois families because he knows they're the coming for. So he understands it. But – and he just – you can see it on his face. And it didn't help that I had my 15-year-old next to me going oh my god is this movie still going as she looked up from her <laughs> ipad oh my god is it still the same scene how long does this scene go for but it's one of the most <laughs> stunning things i've ever i've ever watched and i'll have to watch it again without the kids around so that's uh, my movie uh, the leopard
1: awesome so um i'll jump in i have watched a historical drama as well much less serious much less serious it's called the great it's a sort of satire comedy about Catherine the Great. Um, Elle Fanning plays the young Catherine. Um, It's based on a play, actually, by an Australian playwright, um, which was uh, premiered in Sydney in 2008 and is now um, a show that is... uh, Apparently, he pitched it as a six. Um, series, TV show, and I would love that to to be the case because it is great fun. It's only generally based on history. I wouldn't um, <laughs> watch it for any great knowledge about um, uh, what happens to Catherine and how she um, uh, uh, leads Russia, but but the first season, which has been released, um, it goes from her introduction to Russia to her coup against her husband, Peter III. Um, it's a great – it's actually very funny um uh it's great fun if you're unfamiliar with this period in um a political and uh a political history then it's actually quite valuable just to get your it, sometimes you watch these things and it's not so that you learn the history it's just so that you can start navigating the histories the more serious histories and it's um so if you're unfamiliar with that period in history it's great fun but it's yeah, you know, it, it's it's valuable but it's a just great it is good fun. it's it quite is. rude it's quite rude. Yeah, sorry. I Fabulously mean, rude. so, so um, Content just, warning. just bear in mind. If you're, a, if
0: you're of delicate disposition, <laughs> this is not the show for you. <laughs> but but really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, what, uh, what have you I've, been I've got
2: uh, John Grisham's The Guardians for you uh, this week. Um, I, I know John Grisham uh, is a bit of a lefty. Uh, uh, he was a former Democrat um, politician before he uh, was a full-time Writer, but he is is by far the best uh, legal sort of drama writer mm. in the world. Um, and uh, whenever he has a new book, I I, I quickly uh, sort of get it off the shelf. But th- this one had been a bit delayed, so this was out uh, sort of mid last or end of last year. Um, uh, and I've I've just uh, finished it. And the the story follows um, uh, this uh, lawyer um, slash Episcopalian priest um, who. Um, goes around of, of, of effectively trying to get um, um, people that he thinks are innocent um, free from prison. Um, and and the story focuses on um, a, a man called Quincy Miller who was sentenced um, to Life imprisonment um, for murder. Um, uh, There were no uh, sort of reliable witnesses. There was no reliable evidence. Um, There's a big sort of stitch-up between uh, the police and and various other nefarious um, types um, to put um, this innocent person away. Um, And uh, it it goes through the the sort of legal process about trying to get him out. Um, and it, it sort of links to um, John Grisham's um, real life work, you know, with the innocence projects and, and those sorts of things. And he's um, the, 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 there's now a, uh, I think it's on Netflix um, called the innocent man. There's a, a sort of a off mini series mm. um, kind of out of the book. Um, so it's probably one of those – I feel like Grisham is getting a bit more political in his writings. Um, the, the Rooster Bar, which was out in, um, I think, 2017, was on um, uh, kind of law school, you know, for-profit law schools.
1: And um, Isn't there a serious point there that perhaps the legal system or some of the structures of the legal system that he writes most excitingly about are just getting more political? It's sort of hard not to, if you know what I mean.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, he's he's written some quite sort of compelling. Um, so I th- I think it's the I think it's the confession um, w- which is uh, effectively centered around um, you know capital punishment and the, and the you know um, anti-death penalty sort of stuff. Um, and so yeah, I mean, th- th- there's always been that sort of tinge, hmm. uh, I, I guess, through it. Um, but I think you're right. I think yeah. I think the justice system is getting much more political, which um, uh, I, I guess links back to our earlier discussion today.
0: I must admit, a bit of a guilty pleasure. I, I was always embarrassed about having read The Firm years ago, but I picked up a Grisham earlier this year uh, set in the South and just I thought, this boy can actually write. It's just great writing.
1: Re- I read The Firm very recently, actually, having watched The Firm the movie as a young kid and the book, Goes off the deep end halfway through, (laughs) relative to the movie. Yeah, I was going to say, was it Tom
0: Tom Cruise? Yeah, Tom Cruise. Uh, Fantastic film. I I, I love that film. Tom, I'm sure he had a scene where he ran very fast down the street. Yes, yes, because that's obligatory in every Tom Cruise movie. He's definitely good at running. (laughs) Thank you. We'll we'll put some links up to those, uh, uh, that show that movie and that book in the show notes. I'd like to thank before i come to my panelists i'd like to thank the entire production team for getting us back into the uh, studio today in this magnificent new set for looking forward um so big shout out to steve and saul and mitch and josh and everybody else who's been part of that um it's great to be back uh actually able to talk to people even if socially distanced um, about the important issues. This is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to support our work, please go to ipa.org.au. And now I will thank my panellists, Dr Chris Berg. Thank Scott. Dr Aaron Lane. My distinct pleasure. Uh, I've been Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Another shout-out to Josh Stranger, our producer for today, and Mia Schlicht for the, uh, the show notes. We'll be back with more looking forward next week.